0: Monsters Among Us I am your guide, Derek Hayes Greetings fellow ghouls, gremlins, and goblins As I just said, my name is Derek Hayes And this is my podcast, Monsters Among Us And tonight we're going to do something a little different This evening we celebrate the spooky urban legends That haunt our respective corners of the country That's right Tonight's season 11 finale is the first of a two-part Hometown Legends special. Hometown Legends of the East. Now I'll tell you I've approached this special episode several different ways over the years. But one layout in particular was more fun for me. So tonight, I'm bringing that one back. So this, here Latest installment of hometown legends will again be East versus West. A coast versus coast challenge. The Appalachians versus the Rockies. New York versus L.A. The Great Lakes versus the Great Deserts. The gentle rolling hills of the East against the jagged, rocky crags of the West. And to kick off this special episode, we begin with the Eastern half of the U.S. Well, east of the old Mississippi River, at least. And it's in the state of Michigan that we begin this evening. In a little town called Grand Rapids. Ben, let's hear what you got.
1: Hey Derek, this is Ben calling you from Grand Rapids again. I have a hometown legends for you that I think you might find interesting, especially after some comments you made after the last story you played. So when I was probably about 13 or 14, I had gone with some of my mom's friends for the day and we were going around to small shops uh, around the Grand Rapids area and we had to make a stop at a graveyard. It was around that time of year, around Memorial Day, where people you know, were tending and planting flowers and things like that. So we went to this tiny cemetery in the middle of nowhere that I had never heard of before. And when we pulled into the cemetery, I noticed that there was this woman standing under one of the pine trees. I remember looking to the other two people in the car and saying, oh, we're not the only ones here. So we get out of the car and they're tending to family plots or whatever. And I started walking around wondering where this person was because I noticed there weren't any cars. And I got up to the tree and there was no sign of anybody. I didn't see anybody around. And it seemed odd that this person would just take off into the woods because it was either woods on one side or the road. So they would have had to just trekked off into the middle of nowhere uh, pretty quickly in order for me not to have seen them. So I'm walking around and I keep hearing this name in my head and I know this sounds really weird, but it made no sense. I just kept hearing the name Sarah over and over in my head. And I started searching. And I walked through that entire graveyard and could not find a Sarah to save my life. And I was walking through the woods and some of the old gravestones um, coming around to some of the newer ones. And eventually, near that tree, almost dead center of the graveyard, I finally found a stone that belonged to a Sarah. And for some reason, I just thought it was appropriate to go pick some wildflowers and put them on the grave just seemed like the right thing to do, especially since the graves had gone but not forgotten. And here was this possibly random woman uh, completely forgotten here. So anyway, what makes this a hometown legend is that I really didn't know anything about this place until about five or six years later when I was at a Barnes Noble. And I was looking at one of the weird Michigan books and I came across the Ada Witch story and come to find out, the cemetery that I went to was Findlay Cemetery. It's the exact one that she's supposed to be at, and her name is Sarah McMillan. And I still get shivers every time I think about when I made that connection. I just thought it was really interesting. I seeing things or spirits or even hearing them is not something that's been odd in my life. It's happened many times, but that one was the one that I have the most evidence to back up. So I thought maybe you could use this. Thanks again for featuring me on the podcast and have a great day.
0: Thank you, Ben. You know, believe it or not, I think I know this Sarah that you speak of, but before we explore more about her and the tall tales surrounding her death, let's find out exactly how she ended up in the Finley cemetery and how she earned the handle
2: of the Ada witch.
3: In the 1800s, there was a lady. The legend. A married woman that was having an affair. According
2: to lore, her husband suspected infidelity.
3: So one day he decided to follow her out into the woods.
2: Inside Seedman Park.
3: Caught her in a little tryst with her lover, became angry and confronted them, killed her straight off.
2: Her husband then turned his rage on her lover.
3: With the two men fighting, they ended up causing enough injuries between the both of them that the legend says they both died as well.
2: As the legend has grown, so have the sightings.
3: In the woods around Seedman Park.
2: Of a female apparition.
3: She's seen wandering either up and down the road where Finley Cemetery is at.
2: Two-mile road, unpaved, leading deep into the woods.
3: The legend said that's where her her husband and her lover are all buried.
0: Okay, so we have an idea of who she is. And it certainly sounds similar to what Ben reported to us. But, wouldn't it be nice if we could pin down an exact name?
2: So, who might this woman be? And is the legend true? In 2003, a paranormal group identified the Ada Witch.
3: The name Sarah McMillan.
2: Thrill seekers from all over. Visiting Finlay Cemetery, drawn to Sarah's grave. A fact-finding mission began, hoping to link Sarah McMillan to the legend.
3: I started researching her. Digging. Her maiden name is Chilson.
2: Through death ledgers.
3: She was born in New York.
2: Nicole Bray found that Sarah couldn't be the Ada Witch.
3: And unfortunately, in November of 1870 is when Sarah passed away from typhoid fever.
2: Not by murder as legend holds.
3: Here's her grave getting desecrated because somebody decided to name her as the Ada witch, which she never was.
2: Her findings didn't end there.
3: And we looked at the entire history of Ada from 1850 all the way to 1950 to find two or three deaths that might, you know, coincide with the legend, and none of them did.
0: Okay, that's some bad news. And unfortunately, that's how many of these hometown legends go. At the root, many are quite explainable. But how do you explain the feelings Ben had? How do we write off the
2: sighting that he claimed to have had?
0: And how do we explain other sightings?
2: Sightings like this one. It's been 12 years for Julie Wiley.
4: Yeah, I was driving home from work, heading down Bailey. I was coming up, crossing the hill here, and all of a sudden I see... A woman, as what I thought, sitting in the middle of the street. She had a long, flowing blue dress on, kind of blonde, longish hair, blowing. And she was sitting there waving her arms, and, a- and the words coming out of her mouth to me looked like she was asking, help me, help me.
2: She called and told her boss.
4: And was telling the story, and he's like, oh my gosh, you just saw the Ada Witch.
0: Now all three of those clips come courtesy of WZZM, ABC News 13, out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. So you know it's obvious that people are seeing and or experiencing something strange in the Finley Cemetery. Is it possible that it's simply a coincidence? Or is it more likely that the Ada Witch is not Sarah, but some other yet-to-be-identified tortured soul? You know, either way, I'd keep my eyes open should I find myself driving that lonely stretch of Western Michigan Highway. And I highly suggest you do the same. Thanks again, Ben, for sharing that excellent entry. Keep cool this summer with help from our friends at Manscaped. Manscaped just launched their fourth generation performance package, which includes the new Lawnmower 4.0. Complement your summer grooming routine with a trim from the leaders in male grooming by heading to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with code MONSTERS. Now, I've been using the Manscaped product line for quite a while now, and I can say they really outdid themselves with this new performance package 4.0. You know, it includes the new Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, featuring advanced skin-safe technology. And of course, this one's also waterproof. But also included is the Weed Whacker, the perfect tool to eliminate ear and nose hair as well as some of Manscaped's awesome liquid formulations, Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver, both of which will keep you feeling fresh down under, even in the intense summer heat. Now, Manscaped even threw in two free gifts with their Performance Package 4.0, the Shed Travel Bag and the super soft Manscaped Boxers. So stay fresh this summer. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code MONSTERS at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code MONSTERS at manscaped.com. Now as usual, supporting the sponsors supports the show. So thank you for listening. And back to the legends. That's a sample of the tune "Bigfoot in My Backyard" by the band Eight Bit. As it turns out, the drummer from the band, Bradley, was kind enough to send it in. Now, our next local legend comes to us from the southern half of our designated area, which is, as I mentioned before, divided by the Mississippi River. Well, this is Jeff's tale from the Sunshine
5: State of Florida. Hey Derek, this is Jeff from Fort Lauderdale, Florida Calling for the Hometown Legends episode There are a lot of stories and a lot of uh, legends and ghost hauntings in in the area Which is weird because it's such a young city I'll jump right in So, uh, the beginning of Fort Lauderdale, this whole area was a marsh It was drained and dredged and turned into the place it was today And it was started in about 1830 They started dredging it out so before anyone was really here, it was just kind of known on Spanish maps and everything as uh, the New River. And the Seminole Indians were you had full reign over here in the Miccosukee. So there was one white family off the main you know, New River area called the Cooley family. And they uh, had a nice little family farmhouse, and they were growing something called arrowroot, or the natives called the Coonti. And they would make this and sell it not only to white settlers up north, and to the army, but also to the Seminole, and they had a good rapport with them. So they were making this stuff, and then the Seminole Wars picked up up in Jacksonville, and then the natives that were down in Fort Lauderdale found out that the Cooley family was shipping their arrowroot also to the army that was fighting the natives. So in the middle of the night, the natives raided and killed uh, that family in the 1830s. And it's called the Cooley Massacre. And you can go to that park. It's right here. It's right along the river. Everything is built up around it. But there's a park there called Cooley Park. And the Cooley Massacre was right there. Yeah, they took everything. They raided it. Uh, they killed <laughs> everyone in the family. And then, But then kept the mill because they kept using the mill to grind their arrowroot. Anyways, to this day, you can hear screams random gunshots and yells and stuff late at night and the rumor is that you can go in the anniversary around january 12th and hear this stuff the activity gets really intense then a little addendum there after word got back up to the army in jacksonville up north that the natives raided this building and farmhouse william lauderdale sent a group down to the fort lauderdale area which didn't have a name back then and set up a fort right across the river from where this massacre happened. And that became the first Fort Lauderdale back in 1834 or something like that. So there's a lot of activity that happens in that area. There's a a tunnel that was built underneath the river where uh, many people have seen a Native American man run underneath it. And that's interesting because that tunnel wasn't there until the 1950s or something. In the 20th century for sure, but they sure as hell see a uh, Native American man jump down there in full garb and then disappear. So there's a lot more stories about Fort Lauderdale. I guess I'll call back a little bit later, but that's it. That's my hometown legend. Hope you have a good one. Love the show. Keep it up.
0: Thanks, Jeff. You know, it's a sad reality that these massacres are peppered throughout the country. So many lives both of the white settlers and the native inhabitants were lost. I even spoke of a massacre near my hometown on a recent Hometown Legends episode, the Junaidin Hutton Massacre, along the Tuscaroras River in eastern Ohio. And stories like these are a bit of a catch-22. Now, as much as we would like to forget our violent past and the injustice thrust upon the native population... I think it's important to remember these tragic historical occurrences, or else we may be doomed to repeat them. Thanks again, Jeff, for submitting your hometown legend. Now we might as well get this out of the way right now. If you have a true paranormal story that you would like to share with the show, call the hotline at 1-888-608-9. That's one 888 608 444. Or visit the website at monstersamonguspodcast.com for more submission options. Now this little contest is certainly not limited to the US. That's simply where the lion's share of these submissions hail from. But there are a few from the fine country of Canada that have filtered in. Calls like this one from Mike in Quebec.
6: Hey Derek, Mike here, long-time listener and patron from Montreal, Quebec. I've come across a ghostly tale that I thought you might be able to use in an upcoming Hometown Legends episode, so I hope you like it. One of my most favorite camping haunts to frequent when I was younger was Ontario's Algonquin Provincial Park. Highway 60 cuts straight through the park's boundaries, providing easy access to numerous park and camp campgrounds as well as interior camping access points. If you enter the interior of the park from access point 5 at Canoe Lake, you'll be met with a small memorial stone on the northeastern shore of the lake, located right before you enter the narrows to your first portage. Although I've traveled this exact route myself, little did I know or appreciate at the time, the memorial stone was erected to honor the death of Tom Thompson, and serves to commemorate one of the most intriguing, high-profile, unsolved Canadian mysteries of the early 1900s. Tom Thompson is most notably known for his artwork he produced while he was affiliated with the members of the infamous Group of Seven, an artist collective headquartered in Toronto, Ontario at the turn of the 20th century. Each member of the group was drawn to certain Canadian landscapes for their artistic inspiration, and for Tom, his locale of choice was the Algonquin Highlands. Although the park offers numerous art-worthy visuals, Thompson found himself repeatedly returning to the area surrounding Canoe Lake while pursuing his artistic endeavors. In the spring of 1917, the artist found himself in the throes of perhaps his most potent artistic moment. Over several months, he had managed to produce a new sketch every day in his attempt to capture the Algonquin region's shift from the bleak skies of a leafless winter into the heavy purples and pinks of a summer twilight. In his words... However, as the legend goes, on July 8th, 1917, when Tom Thompson disembarked from his temporary base camp on the shores of Canoe Lake for another painting excursion, he would never be seen alive again. Despite considerable search efforts, it wasn't until July 16th, eight days after Tom had gone missing, that his body was found, floating entangled in fishing wire not far from the shore near the small peninsula where his memorial stone stands today. The story then takes a slightly disrespectful and morbid turn, where, having to await the delivery of a coffin from Toronto and nowhere to properly store the body in the midsummer heat, the locals simply left Tom's body lashed to the dock, floating in the water until the following day, when he was retrieved and laid to rest in the nearby Mowat Cemetery. After hearing of the death, Tom's younger brother George traveled to Algonquin two days later to exhume the corpse for burial in the Thompson family plot, located in the small town of Leith, Ontario. Now, although Tom was generally well-liked, there were certain aspects of the painter's personal life that caused locals to speculate that his death may not have been an accident after all. For instance, Tom was a seasoned outdoorsman. He could expertly command a canoe while navigating questionable waters and those who knew him couldn't quite grapple with how someone with such skill could have met such an untimely passing. Some believed that Thompson had been having an affair with the wife of a local fishing lodge owner, and, having been recently found out, had become the victim of its wrath. Others still suspected that a German local, Martin Belcher, who sought revenge after having had a heated argument with Tom just a few days prior to his disappearance stalked and shot the painter once he was beyond the eyesight of witnesses. Indeed, a gunshot was reportedly heard by witnesses in the area at the time surrounding Tom Thompson's disappearance, lending slight credence to this theory. Nevertheless, despite not having examined the body himself, the coroner of the day, Dr. Arthur Raney, ruled Tom's death to be caused by accidental drowning. However, as time would tell, this deviation from protocol on the coroner's behalf left the door open for future investigation and speculation. Now, as I previously mentioned, Thompson was originally buried in Mowat Cemetery before his brother George came two days later to retrieve his body for burial in the family plot in Leith, Ontario. Despite these claims, in 1956 the skeletal remains of a man were found on the shores of Canoe Lake. Of which displayed irrefutable evidence of a gunshot wound through the left temple. Though the remains were originally thought to have belonged to an Aboriginal man, analysis of the bones in 2008 led researchers to believe that they did indeed belong to Tom Thompson. In light of these findings, the chief forensic pathologist for the province of Ontario at the time officially refuted the original ruling and changed Thompson's cause of death from accidental drowning to unknown. These analyses added yet another layer to the mystery of Tom Thompson. In addition to the conjectures surrounding his death, we're now left to wonder, did Tom's brother George actually make the trip to Algonquin to exhume and retrieve Tom's body? If George did indeed make the trip, but the remains analyzed in 2008 do belong to Tom, then whose body did George retrieve and bury in the family plot in Leith? To this day, the remains in the Thompson family plot have not been exhumed and the DNA analysis between Thompson relatives and the skull that was found on the shores of Canoe Lake in 1956 have not been performed. The uncertainties surrounding the final days of Tom Thompson's life, in addition to the mystery of his final resting place, have been seemingly superimposed on Canoe Lake, whereas several campers have since reported having cryptic encounters of their own. One of my favorite tales comes from a Muskoka-based landscape painter from the 1980s. After returning from an outdoor painting excursion of his own, the painter Doug Dunford described having an encounter with a lone canoeist paddling across the northern corner of the lake through thick fog one morning in July. Following a brief moment of eye contact with the man, Dunford claimed to have snapped a quick photo of the mysterious paddler before the figure abruptly turned and disappeared into the mist. In retrospect, Dunford didn't understand why this person had reacted so dramatically to his photo how he could have disappeared so quickly, until later reviewing his photo and coming to the conclusion that perhaps he had encountered the ghost of Tom Thompson. Although the mystery has yet to be definitively solved, I do believe there is enough evidence to come to a reasonable conclusion about what happened in the final hours of Tom Thompson's life, as well as his resting place. If you enjoyed the story and are interested in hearing some similar delves into other intriguing mysteries through history, please check out my podcast, The Annals of the Unknown. Thanks, Derek, for everything you and the MAU team do to keep this beast rolling. The family and I are always listening and wishing you and yours well from Montreal. Have a great night. Keep it spooky.
0: Thanks, Mike. Now, Mike sent a slew of photos and links that I've posted in the show notes at com forward slash show notes. That applies to nearly every hometown legend submitted here this evening. Now, in a weird way, The Tom Thompson mystery reminds me of another mysterious body story, the Tammam Shug case, or as he's probably better known, the Somerton Man.
7: I guess when it comes to the baffling mystery of the Somerton Man, what we do know are the bare facts and that is that he was found on that beach in Somerton near Adelaide in 1948 It was the first day of summer, so it was quite warm, and two jockeys were walking their horses along the beach and they saw what looked to be a body of a man. At first it was assumed that it was a suicide, but as the police began investigating it, they became convinced that there was more to the story. They found this little tiny piece of paper inside his pocket during the autopsy that showed this printed word Tamam Shud. And they were baffled at the time and they said they put a call out to locals in Adelaide and said, what does this mean? They tracked those words down to the final page of a book of Persian poetry called the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. And those words in Farsi mean the end, or it is finished. And then they found that book. And the book had code inside it. And by this stage, you can imagine that speculation was at fever pitch that this guy was a spy. But no one ever came forward to claim this man, even though that picture that we saw was widely distributed around the world. His fingerprints were were sent to Scotland Yard, the FBI. Nobody knew who this guy was.
0: Now that segment courtesy of ABC News Australia. But you know, unlike the plight of old Tom Thompson... The Somerton Man may be forced to finally give up his secrets.
8: Good evening. Hope tonight that one of the state's most enduring mysteries could finally be solved with the unearthing of the so-called Somerton Man. His remains now in the hands of forensic detectives who will use cutting-edge techniques to try to finally determine who he was and just maybe end decades of
9: public intrigue. Only moments ago, the remains of the Somerton man were placed into a coffin, loaded into a van and taken to the Forensic Science Centre. Following the 12-hour process, detectives have told me they were able to unearth all of the man's skeletal remains and are optimistic that they will be able to retrieve a DNA sample. Forensic scientists have also flagged that they will have to use multiple cutting-edge techniques to ensure that the sample is one that they can use. From there, they will run it against multiple databases with hopes to... Finally, reveal the identity of the man and return any remains to family.
0: So now I guess we wait while Ancestry.com sorts this whole thing out. Now that package comes to us from News9 Australia. And thanks again, Mike, for sharing your entry. Now, before I fire up this next entry, a quick reminder that you can still support and represent your favorite podcast. In one quick internet transaction. Simply click on the shop tab at the website, and there you'll find an array of merchandise of the monster variety. And from now, until we return for season 12, all merchandise in the shop is 10% off. And you know, I had a thought while writing this episode. Maybe it's time we started looking into a hometown legend t-shirt. I guess I'm open to ideas. Okay, then. Well, this next one isn't a hometown legend per se, but rather a personal experience that took place in one of these mysterious places. Please join me in welcoming Jason to the program.
10: Hey, Derek. This is Jason calling from Temecula, California, uh, but this story actually happened to me uh, when I lived in Clayton County, Georgia, just south of Atlanta, and I was a teenager. Uh, I was about 16 years old. Uh, I had a buddy, uh, Robert, and Robert uh, was known in high school as the, as the kid with the cool car. He had the, uh, he had the 87 Mustang GT 5.0, and uh, one Saturday he asked me if I wanted to go for a ride with, with him and another friend of ours, Dustin. The three of us jumped into the Mustang. Uh, Robert's driving, Dustin's in shotgun, and I was in the back seat, and I was kind of in the middle of the back seat, so I could see between them. And I was not wearing my seatbelt because uh, I was not a wise adult; I was a ignorant young kid uh, who didn't think things like that were important. But we were driving on this road that was colloquially known as Devil's Church Road. That wasn't the real name of it, but everyone had these urban legends about the road having a satanic temple in the woods. It was a very windy road. It was probably two miles, super windy, uh, heavily wooded. And there was uh, an area where there was a uh, one-lane bridge. The road narrowed from two to one lane, and there was a one-lane bridge. And, of course, you know the urban legends where you stop the car at midnight and the ghosts of the children and the things like that went on around this road. But this day was actually during the uh, daytime, and, uh, and we were driving his Mustang on. It was very windy roads, too, and it was raining. And so Robert actually, as we're going through these twists and turns of this road uh, in the rain, Robert loses control, and the car spins a full 360 off the road, and we slam hood first into a tree. I don't know how I didn't go flying through the windshield, uh, but uh, I'm fine. I kind of—I'm obviously shocked and and stunned, but I come out of it, and uh, we all sit there for a few seconds just kind of collecting ourselves, and we start hearing something, and we're not sure— Exactly what it is. It's like a buzzing noise, and we we're like, what is that? We think maybe it's something with the car. You know, like we've in, we've we've uh, damaged something with the vehicle. It's making a buzzing noise, but then we realize that's not what it is. What it, we realize what it is is the tree that we hit contained a beehive, and that the beehive had been knocked loose of the tree branch and had fallen and was. Uh, Basically on the ground a few feet away from the vehicle now and hundreds if not thousands of bees are are Swarming out of this hive Uh, and they're starting to come in through the open windows of the car now So we all jump out of the vehicle as quick as we can we we scramble up to the road And we start sprinting down the road and we probably run I'd say a half mile or so um, before the bees stop chasing us and Then we go a little ways further till we catch our breath and we know we're safe they are standing there, wondering what to do. Robert is, you know, obviously really upset about what happened to his car. He's worried what his dad's going to do. But then, like in that moment, a red tow truck shows up and uh, comes around the corner, and it comes from the way that we had just come, like where the car had crashed into the tree. And so this tow truck shows up and it uh, pulls over, and uh, a guy parks and steps out. He's he looks like Thor, and he's wearing overalls. And he comes over to us, and he says, uh, "Hey, is that your car back there?" And we say, "Yeah." He said, "Oh, okay. Well, let's go, let's go pull it off the, um, you know, the embankment." And we say, "Oh, but, but you know the bees." And he's like, "I haven't seen any bees." I'm like, "What?" So we jump in his truck cab with him, and it's you know we're squished in there. We drive a little. He turns around. We drive a little half mile back to the car, and there's no bees. The bees are gone. The honeycomb, the nest or whatever, is still there. We can see it on the ground, you know, not far from the car. But the bees themselves are all gone. And he hooks the car up. He brings us back onto the road. The car actually still functions. And we are able to actually go ahead and just drive right on out of there, back to Robert's house. Uh, There was some superficial damage to the vehicle, but uh, it didn't look like there was anything seriously mechanically wrong. You know, it was like he pulled... pulled us back onto the road, I remember looking at I don't remember the name of the company, but I remember looking at the name of the company on the side of the tow truck at that point. And then we we just tell him thank you and, you know, we could get our parents to pay him. So yeah, we get back to Robert's dad's house and I had remembered the name of the company, which I don't remember anymore. But I remember looking up in the yellow pages that tow truck company. I just remember feeling compelled to thank the guy, maybe to you know, have my mom or dad call or whatever because he had really saved us in a tight situation. And I couldn't find the name of that tow truck company. It was as if that tow truck company didn't exist. And you know, this was pre-the internet, so the Yellow Pages were in theory at least going to have all the, all the businesses in your surrounding area. It was a really strange experience. This guy just shows up out of the middle of nowhere at the exact moment we need him. The bees are gone. And he works for a tow truck company that I can't then find a record of. Um, I don't know that I believe in guardian angels or you know benevolent spirits that help you out or whatever uh But if I have any event in my life where I did encounter something like that, uh it's definitely gonna be th- that situation when I was a teenager, so I just thought that was a really interesting story. It didn't make a lot of sense, but it did fit the pattern of something like a guardian angel and uh I hope that's uh, a good one for the show. I uh, love the show. Uh, take care, dear.
0: Thank you, Jason. So is this right place, right time? Or was that tow truck fellow watching? It's creepy stuff, either way. So thank you, Jason, for sharing. Now, we have so many stories to get through this evening. I'm going to rapid-fire through a few more. And this next one comes to us from Shelby in Kentucky.
9: Hey, Derek, this is Shelby calling from Kentucky. I live in the eastern part of Kentucky, very close to Tennessee, and I have a story that I think you and your listeners might enjoy. I guess I'll start by saying that this is somewhat of a local legend where I live. Off of Highway 80, there is a road called Souls Chapel. If you go down that road you'll find a graveyard which was originally a church called soul's chapel church it originally was one of the oldest methodist churches in our town and had one of the oldest graveyards in our county it stopped being used for services in the 1930s it caught fire in the 1970s was saved but sadly burned down in 2005. it was at one point used as a civil war hospital as our town was taken over a few times and it was said that it had many blood stains on the floor from this time However, that really isn't the point of the story. The story begins with the reverend of the original church, who led the church around the turn of the century. From then, he slowly tried to turn his flock to Satanism. Now, disclaimer, I don't believe in the shaming of any beliefs that anyone holds. I'm just stating what I have read and what I've been told. He started his plight very simply by a few rituals and continued by etching pentagrams into the floor of the church in hopes to summon demons, now, I was not alive around the time in which I could actually go in and explore the church before it burned down. However, my mother was, she and a lot of her friends went out there to explore the church. And she verified that statement by saying that there actually were a lot of pentagrams etching to the floor. Now, whether or not that was the reverend, I'm not sure, but that's just really what she told me. The etchings were left on the floor during the services, but after that, it really got worse In our town, small animals began to turn up missing, which then turned into large farm animals becoming missing, which were reportedly being used for sacrifices. However, it eventually grew to the point in which human sacrifices were being made. I did try to look up that, but there wasn't really much information on it. But at that point, the the people in my town began to be very suspicious of the reverend. And as word of the deeds that he was committing leaked out into the community... They became very enraged, and at that point, a mob was formed. They then marched out to the church and hung the reverend in the building from the roof beams. Since that time, the remains of the church as well, the graveyard, have been a point of interest for a lot of visitors to Somerset, as well as a lot of the community members, especially you know teenagers wanting to go freak themselves out, as well as ghost hunters. Uh, there have been a lot of articles written on that as well the stories that I've heard really have not disappointed me. I love the paranormal and I like to research my town as there have been a lot of things that happened here. Some of the things that people see are orbs and photos that they have taken, EVPs, recordings, um, full-body apparitions, unexplained noises being heard off into the woods besides the graveyard. And a very common report that happens is if you're trying to get into your car to leave, your car will die. The battery will drain. I have personally been out to Soul's Chapel a number of times and I've experienced some very unexplainable things. So for me, to begin with, I went out there probably around midday as to not freak myself out too much. Um, (laughs) I was also with somebody else, so I felt pretty comfortable, but as soon as I got there, you can sincerely feel the energy shift. It's really not a good energy there, it feels very dark, sad, and very gloomy. So, as we were both looking through the graveyard, obviously being very respectful of those who ha- have been laid to rest there, we heard what I thought to be a scream. It sounded a bit like a very high woman scream. That can be attributed to local animals, but it seemed so close to us. It genuinely sounded like a person screaming. It did happen off into the woods, which, by the way, were where they said that a lot of the sacrifices happened. I really didn't investigate further as I just really wanted to get out of there the few times I have been there after that were at night but I really didn't stay for long enough to either experience something but I can honestly say that the energy there is absolutely awful I would like to think I can pick up on a lot of paranormal energies as you know not professionally but enough to where I know something's wrong so I haven't been out there a lot I don't like the way it feels so I don't make it a point to go out there Uh, I do have a few friends who have been out there. A couple of close friends of mine did go out there, and as they were trying to get into their car to leave, as they were either creeped out, I don't think anything happened, but they just didn't want to be there anymore. Their car battery died, which is a very, as I said, common report. Their car battery died, so I don't know if they jumped it, but they did eventually, obviously, leave. If you look up Soul's Chapel, you'll see a lot more experiences as well as actual professional ghost hunters per se that went out there with EVP readers recordings. They reported their camera batteries draining and dying. There's a lot more to it than what I personally experienced, but I did think that it was a very interesting story. There has been a book published about it. I read the book. It's very good, so I recommend that to anybody who would be interested in this I will say, though, if you live anywhere near Kentucky and you know about this, you'll also probably know that the owners of the land do not like people out there. That doesn't really stop anyone. But just a disclaimer, if you do end up somewhere in eastern Kentucky and you think about this recording, then I wouldn't recommend going out there. But if you do, then you do. You know, obviously can't really stop you. But that's my story, at least. If you take the time to look it up, you'll see a plethora of articles that have been written and experiences that other people have. That's really it. I really love your show. You're doing such a great job. It's become very quickly one of my favorite podcasts to listen to, honestly. And I really appreciate you. So I have a a lot more experiences in this town, at least, from where I live to places that I've worked. So I hope to call again soon. I hope you enjoy the story. Thank you again.
0: Thanks, Shelby. More places with a devilish name. It makes one wonder if these places were named that way because they are dark, dreary places. Or do these swaths of land feel spooky because of the devilish name? Sort of a chicken or the egg, so to speak. Either way, thanks again, Shelby. And next on the pike is a legend out of New York. Ken? Welcome to the program.
11: Yeah, hi Derek, this is Ken from uh, Clarence, New York, about 20 minutes outside of Buffalo. Love my hometown, love my home city. Uh, But I'll tell you, it's definitely probably one of the, not necessarily the most haunted, but definitely one of the strangest places in the world. There's a legend of my hometown. It's about Delaware Road, and it's this road. It's a rather long road, but it isn't a residential area, or it's bookended by a residential area, I should say. So when you're in the middle of the road, you can't see either end of the road. And when you drive down it in the middle, you can't really hear either end of the road either. So it's very quiet. And I've had nothing happen personally on that road, although when I was on there once, it was eerily quiet, like a dead zone. However, I did have an experience next to the road and I will share that but um, as far as legend and lore about the road I've heard everything from the ghost of an old man with a lantern to a ghost of a little girl and an old man a hairless Bigfoot type of deal but my experience is I was driving past there, I don't know let's say 6 or 7 years ago I was with my parents it was probably about 1 in the afternoon sunny fall day and I look up we pass Delaware Road, and then there's a farm or a field next to it. And I look up and to the right out of the front windshield, about at a 45-degree angle, and there is, in this open field, what I could only describe as a silver, seamless disco ball, completely round, but the same color you'd get off a disco ball, that gray, weird kind of reflective light. And I'm watching it, and I say, Mom, look... And she looks, and as she looks, she sees it a little bit, but as she looks, we go behind just one or two trees, and it starts to fade and fade and fade, and then it's gone. It's the only paranormal experience I've ever had in my life. It's probably the only one I really want to have, but uh, (laughs) it's definitely something out of the ordinary there. And uh, the other one I wanted to tell you about was the pig man. Now, I don't live in Angola. I have a friend who lives in Angola, but supposedly there's this, like, it's like any of these other men, quote-unquote, you know, man kind of monster men who stalked the road with an axe or any kind of weapon. And it is connected to a real horror story, quote-unquote, called the Angola Horror, they call it. And what was happening, this is a real train wreck. The train was going over the bridge, and somehow the passenger car dislodged and was hanging over the bridge off the side. Now, granted... It wasn't a terribly high drop, but the problem was at the end of the car there was a stove heating the car, and basically if you didn't get crushed by the weight of the people coming to smash you, if you weren't lucky enough to die there, you were seared to death against this furnace. So all these people died. Very serious accident, and it may or may not have something you know they they connected to this this pig man story which may or may not be based in fact too, but the angola horror the train wreck is a fact absolutely so it's it, again this whole area of western new york as we call it our depending on where you are in new york some people call it upstate some people call it downstate i don't know i call it western new york it's just a very strange area you know there's zora valley is completely full of this weird kind of stuff um i myself i'm half native american i'm Although my my tribe is from Canada, we're in the Iroquois Confederacy. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of legends of, of weird things just from the Seneca Indians, upright walking animals, and like deer and stuff, and these things that aren't supposed to be. And uh, thank you again, love your show, love. Uh, I just found it again recently, love what you do and love to hear it. Keep up the good work. Hope you're safe. Hope your family's safe. All right you got to come to Buffalo sometime, man. There's a lot you can do here. Whether you want to eat or anything, you just want to look at weird stuff, okay? right. right. Bye-bye. Thank you, Ken.
0: Okay, I'm intrigued. Tell me more about this hairless Bigfoot type of deal. That's a nightmarish image I have yet to imagine. A quick Google search didn't bring me much of anything for this creature. So if you happen to know anything, please... Say something. And thank you again, Ken, for calling in. Now we venture back to the state of Florida, where Nick shares our next entry.
12: Hi, Derek. My name is Nick, and I'm calling about the hometown legend segment. I live in Polk County, Florida, about five minutes from the city of Lake Wales which is where this legend is. In the city of Lake Wales, there is a hill there called Spook Hill. And the legend of Spook Hill is there was once Native Americans that lived on the land, and they were terrorized by an abnormally large alligator. They were hunted, killed, eaten, black stock, everything, was terrorized by this giant alligator. And the chief of the tribe fought the alligator. And during their battle, a giant lake was formed. And after the chief killed the alligator, the lake was formed and the tribe lived around this lake. So the legend is that on Spooks Hill, when you park your car, you go up the hill and you put your car in neutral. And when you do, your car will slowly go up the hill on its own. And the legend is is that it's it's either the native chief helping get your car to safety, or it's the alligator attempting to wreck and destroy your car and eat it. Nobody knows exactly what the legend is, but science has kind of attempted to debunk this this legend. They say it's a gravity hill, which is basically an optical illusion that when you park your car, put it in neutral. It seems as though you're moving up. It did meet, reach national headlines back in the 1990s. It made it to uh, Wall Street Journal, and it had its own segment there on CBS that they talked about for a little bit. So it did reach national news, but whether or not it's legitimately something pushing you up the hill or is an obstacle illusion, I guess that's up to you uh, how you want to perceive things. Sometimes I like to think that supernatural still so exists. And exactly explain everything sometimes. I really enjoy the show. Definitely be calling in about other stories that I have. If you know what you're doing.
0: No, it certainly wouldn't be a hometown legend without a Gravity Hill entry. Thank you, Nick. This one is actually new to me. I don't recall hearing about it before. But according to WFTV ABC News 9 out of Orlando, everything Nick said was correct.
8: Now the next time you're in the
13: Lake Wales area, whether you're visiting Tower Garden or having dinner at the famed Chalet Suzanne, I've got a little stop for you. Take about five minutes of your time, it doesn't cost anything, it's highly entertaining, and you won't even have to get out of the car. It's called Spook Hill.
0: So important to the folks of Lake Wales that the elementary school next door has taken the name. Now head on over to the show notes to see that video. The camera makes it look like they're rolling in the correct direction. But take a look for yourselves and tell me what you think. And I must say, naming the elementary school after the phenomena is a pretty nice touch. Thanks again, Nick, for calling in. And guys, a quick little update on our documentary, Shadows in the Desert, High Strangeness in the Borrego Triangle. Now we have our final shoot dates locked down. By mid-August, we will have completed that portion of the process. Then it's time for our editor, Matt, to shine. Now, with a little luck, this thing may be ready reasonably soon. But I'll be honest, the pandemic really put a hurt on our already ragtag production. Most of our original crew was forced to take higher-paying gigs. It was impossible to reach people for interviews. It was impossible to travel. And of course, not being able to meet up really set us back. Not only schedule-wise, but financially as well. And it's because of that, and believe it or not, we still get requests for it, that we're deciding to open donations back up. Now these funds will help us cover a lot of the post-production costs. And these are the exact same tiers as the original campaign. So if you missed the boat or was just late to the party... Now is your chance to become part of this, well, to be honest, part of this amazing little film. We've already captured some pretty good stuff. So anyway, if this is you, you can donate directly at paypal.me forward slash Or check out the link on our social media or in the show notes. And a huge, huge thank you to all involved. Now our next Hometown Legend was actually submitted from the West Coast, but pertains to a story on the East. So now that we've cleared all that up, please welcome Brad from California to the program.
13: Hey Derek, this is uh, Brad out of Southern California. Called in once or twice. I started listening to this podcast through your Hometown Legends episode, your most recent one in uh, Season 10, and somewhere else in that season you had mentioned ww pool mausoleum of a vampire named ww pool but what got me it said that he was in north carolina Now i don't know if that was you know a, uh, a mistake on your part or misinformation or or what or maybe even a coincidence there also is one but my personal hometown legend is from my hometown of richmond virginia I was born and raised in Hopewell, Virginia, but the closest big city and where I spent a lot of my time was in Richmond. And when I was hanging out with my dad for the very first time at 13, he was giving me a little tour of the state. You know, I mean, I lived there my whole life and he was from Louisiana, but he spent a lot of time in Virginia and he knew quite a bit as he was a history buff. Uh, I grew to be one myself. So anyway, we're doing this little tour, and he takes me to the Petersburg battlefield, the crater in Petersburg, and you know he also takes me to Hollywood Cemetery in the city. And as this is the first time we're getting to know each other, and we're meeting up and learning a lot about each other, father and son, he's telling me all types of stories from his time that he spent in Virginia. And at one point in his life, he worked at the Hollywood Cemetery. He had quite a couple interesting stories to share about his time there just because it attracts a lot of odd local folk, especially at night. But one I remember, you know, since I was a kid, really stuck out to me was the legend of W.W. Poole. Now, he told me the story of Poole as a warlock. He told me that during one of his shifts, his designated job, by the way, was to specifically protect Poole's mausoleum. That's how much of a significance Poole had in the uh, in the cemetery, whether it be based on his legend or not. His specific job was to protect and guard Poole's mausoleum. One night, him and his sergeant, his boss, uh, I guess upper personnel, or whatever, had showed up. And unfortunately, some Satanist kids, teenagers or, or young adults had you know already arrived at the uh, mausoleum and were performing some kind of ritual. I guess due to the legend, These folks believed they could bring Mr. Poole back and that he could essentially either, you know, take over the world or at least lead their little group. You know, they were dedicated to this guy. So they were constantly having to fend off uh, different occultists that visited his mausoleum. Anyway, this one night, these kids, this is, I think, uh, before I was even born back in the mid nineties, these kids had, uh, unfortunately set up a few traps around the, uh, the cemetery. And my dad, Sergeant had, pursued after one, and he ran in between two obelisk gravestones that were there, and, and Richmond was a very hilly city, and so was the cemetery, so when this one kid, you know, disappeared out of view between these two obelisks, the security guard sergeant actually ran through them. Turns out the kid did a duck and roll. He didn't disappear. He didn't fall. He did a duck and roll, he ducked because he set up a trap of uh, fishing hooks that caught the sergeant. I uh, actually blinded him in one of his eyes really tore him up because he just ran face first into fishing lo- hooks on fishing line. That's just one interesting story. But what really got me is, you know, just uh, having heard your episode of hometown legends and, and being from there, I wanted to know a little bit more about WW pool. I wanted to know why he was a legend. Um, I actually searched WW pool, the warlock, but as it turns out, he, the legend isn't actually that he was a warlock. It said he was a vampire. um, now, I don't know if my dad misheard Warlock or if, you know, it has just translated over time to different stories, but Poole, the, the vampire, supposedly a vampire who's run out of England in the early 1800s, I think, and he took refuge in Jamestown and then settled in Richmond. And his mausoleum became the center of this vampire story because of, I think it was a coal fire, but apparently some kind of tragedy had happened in Richmond back in that time period. But essentially, a man had been burnt really, really bad, was really bloodied up from whatever had occurred there. And when these firemen went down to look for you know survivors of this fire, they had found a man who was extremely bloody and no ears, he was just really tore up. He looked like a creature of the night. And whether it be through all the smoke or, or the fear that these firemen had, they saw this injured man, I can't remember his name, but they saw him as a creature and he ran. I don't know if it was due to you know delusion or, or fear himself, just being an immense amount of pain. But supposedly, these firemen chased this guy, this creature, into the mausoleum of W.W. Poole. So whenever this event occurred, that was the birth of Poole the Vampire. Because it, it looked like he had uh, crawled into the mausoleum, and then people were led to believe that he was just a vampire returning to his uh, coffin. Now, it was later turned out, of course, that uh, who they had seen actually ended up in the hospital, and he died in the hospital. And Pool, if you uh, do the research, I think was just a regular guy, maybe a blacksmith. But these two people, you know, completely different people, completely different backgrounds. There, you know, the tragedy led to the creation of Pool the Vampire. You know, I don't know how it turned to warlock. Could just be, you know, one person speaking to another. There's a couple college campuses in Richmond. Uh, VCU being the, the main one, you know, word of mouth translates things. But it's funny because if you tour there at night, there's still kids. You know, you're not supposed to be there at night. Let's just clarify that. So clarify that. There's still people showing up to Pool's Grave. I used to uh, play Pokemon Go on my lunch breaks in the Hollywood Cemetery. A bunch of great Pokestops in there, by the way. You know, I would hang out there. I'd hang out at Pool's Grave and it never felt ominous. I never felt like there was a vampire sleeping right next to me. But yeah, man, that's the as a hometown legend, WW Pool, the vampire slash warlock, you know, the, the crazy thing is is that whether there's a vampire in there or not, the real danger is the people that live today. You know, I, I have nothing against any religion, whether it be Christian or Satanist, you know, or none of the above, but there, are, there's some dangers from some people who practice occult things in that graveyard. It's a little ironic that people fear the vampire, but <laughs> the real issue is these kids anyway, man, uh, thank you for letting me share my hometown legend. I don't know if maybe you wanted to let me know if there is another WW pool in North Carolina, or if that was just a slip of the tongue, it would be a very interesting coincidence. There's two WW pool vampires in two different States of the South. But yeah, man, if you ever end up in Virginia, I would definitely check out the Hollywood cemetery. It's got a great view of the river, a bunch of interesting graves and stories to tell there. And if you're into Pokemon, like I said, great stops. Thanks for the podcast, man. And thank you for your time.
0: Thank you, Brad. You know, the Richmond Vampire is a cool little story that I just learned about relatively recently. And, as Brad mentioned, I talked about it on a past Hometown Legends episode. Hometown Legends Part 3 from Season 10, to be exact. However, as of now, that is still a Patreon-exclusive episode. But regardless, I firstly want to mention the fishing hook booby trap. Now a quick story. When I was 15 or so, I caught a rather large walleye in a relatively tiny local reservoir. Now unfamiliar familiar with this species of fish at the time. I struggled to remove the hook from the thrashing 20-inch fish with exacto knives or teeth. Well, one way or another, a large lurch of the fish sent one of the barbs of the treble hook into the pad of my ring finger on my left hand. No thinking quick, my dad cut the rest of the hook free, allowing me to separate my finger from line, lure, and fish. While well, we rushed over to my grandparents' house, who only lived a few short miles away, I held my hand in ice water for five minutes, then watched as my grandmother yanked on the protruding stomp of the hook with a pair of pliers as my dad did his best to hold my hand down on the table. Now not only did this not work, but it hurt like hell. The barbed hook was not going to budge. And before you suggest that she should have just ran it on through, she tried. But the bone blocked the hook from going all the way. Now eventually we all conceded and Dad rushed me to the ER in town. The doc got me in and out with relative ease. How, I'm not sure. By that point, it was over the whole operation and opted not to watch. Now I say all that to say this. I can't imagine these hooks getting embedded in the sergeant's face and eyes. And with the force of him running. That's awful. And then there's this other point that I'd like to get at. Brad came at me, claiming that I said the Richmond Vampire case originated out of North Carolina. Well, I scoured my records, listened to past shows, and I was unable to find that screw-up. So I volley back to you, good sir. Perhaps it was you that was mistaken. And to show my receipts, here is the full mention in that particular legend from that episode, Monsters Among Us Beyond, number 28. As many of you know, I grew up a huge horror buff. And vampires were among my favorite of Hollywood's creations. The Lost Boys, Fright Night, and of course, the countless Dracula films. So naturally, I wanted to tell you guys another infamous vampire hometown legend. But outside of Mercy Brown, the Highgate Vampire in the UK, and of course, the Nagal, which we covered on Hometown Legends Part 1. Now, outside of those, I couldn't think of another story. Luckily, Josh over at the Facebook group introduced me to a story I'd never heard of before. The Hollywood Cemetery Vampire from Virginia.
14: So our ghostly story begins here on October 2nd, 1925, just about a hundred feet inside this sealed off tunnel. It's one of Richmond's greatest and most mysterious legends. This 4,000-foot-long tunnel had been a nightmare since the deadly construction began in 1871. 88 years ago, a work crew was widening the shaky tunnel. A brick fell from the arched ceiling, slamming into one of the 10 railroad (laughs) flat cars. Watch out! She's a-coming in! shouted the burly 28-year-old fireman, Benjamin Mosby. The tunnel collapsed, entombing engineer Tom Mason at the throttle. At least one and probably two or three of the 200 or so laborers inside were also buried alive. The tough guy fireman, Ben Mosby, horribly burned, his face and teeth smashed, managed to crawl under the flat cars and run for it. Now after the collapse, the men had to run here to the eastern portal, nearly a mile away. Can you imagine stumbling over railroad ties and each other? Reportedly, the men had their knives out, cutting anything that got in their way. Now, witnesses said this man-like creature, nearly naked, came running out with flesh hanging off its body, like pointed teeth and burning eyes. According to legend, the horrifying creature was chased down towards the James River, all the way here to Hollywood Cemetery, where he disappeared inside of this mausoleum, supposedly home to a vampire. But news reports at the time make no mention of the ghoulish flight to Hollywood Cemetery. The brave Mosby was taken here, to the old Grace Hospital, where he died from his ghastly injuries. Rescuers dug straight down through Jefferson Park to recover the body of the white engineer, Tom Mason. The reverse lever rammed against his suffocated chest. The laborers, Engine 231, and the ten flat cars remain buried inside this tunnel of misery. So that's just one of the stories surrounding the strange goings-on here at this mausoleum.
0: That clip comes courtesy of WTVR, CBS6 News, out of Richmond. No, all kidding aside, thank you, Brad, for the entry. And the great little legend. Now you folks may remember our next guest from our last regular episode of season eleven. Well, it seems that Justin from Pennsylvania might have found a little loophole to get played back-to-back. Well, here he is this week with his hometown
15: legend. Hey, Derek, this is Justin calling again. Wanted to give you a hometown legend. Again, I'm from southwestern Pennsylvania. This legend is in South Park, right on the tip of South Park Township in Jefferson Hills Borough. It's called Green Man's Tunnel. So, Green Man's Tunnel, supposedly, it's actually been on a couple older shows, early 2000s. I can't remember the one. So, yeah, Green Man's Tunnel, it's a tunnel that's currently used, they use it in the winter to store salt, the road department and stuff, but Green Man's Tunnel, um, I guess the story is, what I've heard is, this guy named Charlie Robinson, back in the day, when, like, 1940s, 1930s. Was changing a light bulb in the tunnel, and water was dripping from the ceiling. And as he was trying to change the bulb, water dripped and connected and electrocuted him. Which kind of far fetched, but you know what can you do? It's a legend. So ever since then, you know he he died, of course, there in the tunnel. And ever since then, it's said that if you go to Green Man's Tunnel, the Green Man chase you out pretty much. You're supposed to see a green figure, an actual person with a green hue on them, or a green light it's supposed to be off in the woods. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. But there's actually another legend. It's literally, one wall of Green Man's Tunnel goes into another tunnel that's currently used. It's an active road. It's a one-way tunnel. You've got to stop, beep. If you don't hear any beeps, then you go through it. But it's supposed to be called Corvette Arlo. So Corvette Hollow, I guess back in the 80s, maybe 70s, something like that, a woman and a male was racing down the road real fast. They go zooming through the tunnel and they hit the ravine and they end up in the creek that runs in between the tunnel wall and the road and uh, flipped into the creek upside down and supposedly both of them didn't make it. So they say, I know it's in October, of course, but I know it's in October, I can't remember the date but if you go there on this date at midnight in October, you're supposed to hear the tire shrieks of them going over into the creek and then the blood curdling screams of a woman. So that's just two of the many hometown legends in my area you know, old Pennsylvania Dutch there's legend and superstition everywhere. So cool man, hope you can use it again, love the show got more stuff I'll be calling in with Do what you do, bro.
0: Bye. Thanks, Justin, and welcome back to the program. The story Justin told on the last episode really seemed to resonate with people. The attachment ghost of Justin's first dead-on-arrival case as a first responder. If you haven't heard the story, check out Season 11, Episode 19 to do so. Now, the Green Man Tunnel is another of those legends that we've discussed on previous episodes. Season 10, Episode 2, and more recently, Season 11, Episode 16. And of course, on those episodes, we referred to him as Charlie No-Face. But this is also a story that's been solved, so to speak. Green Man, Charlie No-Face, whatever you'd like to call him, we should refer to him as Raymond Robinson.
16: But the real Charlie No Face was actually the opposite of the monster that the legend came to portray. His real name was Raymond Robinson, and he was a longtime resident of Beaver County. In 1919, when Raymond was just 8 years old, he was playing with his friends near an old trolley bridge. They saw a bird's nest on the bridge, and Raymond climbed up to see what was inside after being dared to do it by another boy. While climbing the bridge, he came in contact with wires carrying 22,000 volts of electricity. He was severely burned, and doctors didn't think he would survive. In fact, another boy had died recently by being electrocuted on that same bridge. But against all odds, he did survive, and he lived for quite a long time, until the age of 74. Unfortunately the accident left him severely disfigured. His face looked as if it had been melted. He lost his eyes, his nose, and one arm. Raymond was mostly a recluse who spent almost all of his time with his family. He also liked to hike at night when he could venture out more inconspicuously. He passed away on June 11th, 1985, and he's buried in Grandview Cemetery, just over the hill from the bridge where he was electrocuted as a child.
0: Now that segment comes courtesy of Cryptic
16: on YouTube.
0: So this tunnel was apparently on old Ray's walking path. And thus, the legend was born. And it's been said that Raymond was mocked by outsiders. Had things thrown at him, and he'd even been hit more than once by a car. But locals seemed to love the guy. I'd even heard stories of people stopping to have a beer with him on the side of the road. Now, it's tragic what happened to him, but I would like to think he enjoyed the legend. After all... Here we are, still talking about him, to this day. Thanks again, Justin, for calling in. Tonight's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Does it seem like there's a block between you and your happiness? Do you struggle daily, but are unsure where to turn? Well, BetterHelp can and will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a convenient, safe online environment and start communicating in under 48 hours. With BetterHelp, you have the option to schedule weekly video or phone sessions, or message your counselor pretty much any time. Now, rest easy knowing anything you share is completely confidential. Now, BetterHelp's counselors specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, trauma, family conflicts, and a whole lot more. And the service is available worldwide, so it doesn't matter where you're listening from. And you know, this whole thing's at a more affordable price than the traditional offline counseling. And financial aid is also available if you need it. Now, I want you to start living a happier life. I want you to conquer those blocks. And as a Monsters Among Us listener, you get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at BetterHelp.com forward slash Monsters Among Us. Allow BetterHelp to offer you that lifeline. Join over 1 million people who have already taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Monsters Among Us. Now, as always, supporting our sponsors supports the show. So thanks for listening. And back to those hometown legends. It's a good morning for morning It'll be a better evening for grieving
2: In a storm I know you'll feel better when I say so I got nothing better to say to you anymore Take this retro depression I'm selling everything That I thought had a tie I'll hop the next novelty train It'll take me right back To the state where I died
0: One
4: more time. To the up in your to now of
0: course, that's our good friend Captain Catfish off his newly released album, Burial Sounds. Listen to me. I sound like a radio DJ. So stay tuned for Traffic on the Nines with Nina Childs and Sports at the Bottom of the Hour with Mark the Shark Roberts, two people that live solely within my head. I think I need a vacation. Well, luckily for me, it's that time again, where I get to take a little time off between seasons. But I will return sometime next week with Hometown Legends 2, Tales of the West. But after that, I'll be dark until the Season 12 premiere, the Medical Workers Special. So if you haven't already, be sure to get those calls in, folks. But don't worry, folks. I'm coming back. I will see you in mid-September. And fear not, because we have a lot more to discuss here tonight. And to get us started, or should I say to wrap us up, please welcome Eric from the Empire State of New York
8: to the program. Yes, this is a submission for Local Legends. My name is Eric, and I'm calling from Buffalo, New York. This is a couple stories about the hobgoblin of Old Fort Niagara. At Old Fort Niagara, on the shores of Lake Ontario, at the mouth of the Niagara River, there's a hobgoblin. What's a hobgoblin, you might ask? Well, according to Mason Winfield, a local historian and folklorist, it's like a regular goblin, but only hobbier. Tales of this elusive little imp begin in 1803, when a piper stationed at the fort named John Carroll had a bit too much one night, and as one is unfortunately likely to do, developed an overinflated sense of courage and got lippy with his commanding officer, quite possibly the hulking major and later general Moses Porter. To sober up, the besotted pfeiffer was thrown into the hole, not a cell, as the modern listener might imagine, but a literal hole dug into the floor of the South Redoubt. Before too long, the inebriated Carol began to wail that he was being tormented by a demon that was pinching him and singing a song to him. He cried out so fearfully and piteously that his guardsmen provided the beleaguered songsmith, Carol, with a light, pen, and paper, so he could write down... The Supernaturally Inspired Airwake, which was entitled Carol's Thoughts on Eternity. Then in 1812, a young unnamed soldier was on watch during a dark and stormy night. He spotted the hobgoblin in the Fort Cemetery during a flash of lightning. The sentry was so shaken by the sight of the being dancing and hopping amongst the grave markers, he fired off a shot in the general direction of the beastie and ran off, Straight into a barricade, knocking himself out cold. The commotion brought out the young guardsman's colleagues on the run, the sister fellow soldier. Finding the unconscious soldier, the sergeant of the guard took a whiff of his canteen and found that it was a quarter full of corn whiskey. So, a common denominator of the first two sightings of the spirits were spirits. However, over the years, there have been many sightings of a hopping, cavorting hobgoblin amongst gravestones in the cemetery of the fort, especially on a foggy night. And surely not all of them could be inspired by John Barleycorn. Thanks for letting me share. Have a great night.
0: Hobgoblins. That's what hometown legends is all about. Now this is a portion of the piece written in the whole a Terrifying Evening by John Carroll. Carroll's Thoughts on Eternity. I expected it to be spookier. But you know, all this goblin talk has got me thinking. I still haven't submitted my hometown legend for this episode. Then I pondered, is there possibly a hobgoblin story from my home state of Ohio I could share? Well, after some digging, I did manage to find a story that involved trolls, which we all know are widely accepted to be the close cousin of the hobgoblin. The story goes as follows. About 4 a.m. on a March night in 1952, while driving through Branch Hill, an unknown businessman saw in the beams of his headlight what appeared to be three men kneeling at the right side of the road. His first impression was that somebody was hurt or some crazy guys were having fun. Curious, he stopped the car and got out for a better look. To his surprise, he discovered that the figures were non-human and about three feet tall. They were not green, the businessman stressed, but rather a grayish color, including the garments they wore. Those garments were tight-fitting, and they stretched over a lopsided chest which bulged at the shoulder to the armpit. Over this bulbousness hung a slender arm noticeably longer than the opposite member. The businessman also claimed the creatures had a frog's face mostly because the mouth spanned a thin line across the smooth gray face. The businessman thought the eyes, without brows, seemed normal, and the nose was indistinct. The top of the head had an effect like a plastic doll's hair, he added. It was corrugated like the rows of fat running horizontally over a bald head. Now according to the businessman, the middle biped and the one closest to him was first seen with his arms upraised. They were raised a foot or so above the head, he said, and holding a dark chain or stick which emitted blue-white sparks jumping from one hand to the other. As he approached, he said this biped then lowered its arm with the chain, as if to tie it around its ankles. He said he wanted to get closer, but by the time he had reached the front of the fender of his car... The little man made a slight unnatural move toward him, as if motioning not to come any closer. For about three minutes, he said he stood there still, just watching, too amazed to be afraid. The next thing he remembered, he was on his way to Fritz's office. That blurb was from Singular Fortean. A quick shout-out to Tobias and Emily. Now, I'll be quick to admit that this story comes from the opposite side of the state from where I grew up. But it was still only 150 miles or so away. And this encounter took place in Branch Hill, in the southwest portion of the state. And would it surprise you to know that this encounter, which was rumored to be investigated on the ground by the FBI, took place some 50 miles away from a place called Wright-Patterson Air Force Base a base rumored to take part in certain alien studies and the possible destination for the alleged Roswell alien bodies, some five years prior. Now, if that didn't impress you, perhaps this will. This sighting also took place in close proximity to another mysterious area in Ohio, the town of Loveland, home of the infamous Loveland Frogman. Wouldn't you know, it's only three short miles up the Little Miami River. So trolls, frog people, or even hobgoblins, something strange was seen in that area. And something indeed strange was reported in yours as well, Eric. And thank you for submitting it. And you know, folks, that's going to do it for this first episode. Monsters Among Us is written... And produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. Keep the party rolling by following us on social media. We have accounts at Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And the terrifying score that you hear, well, that's Code AG Music and Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you all for submitting your hometown legends. And until next week. I have another story that may ring a bell for you. Tonight's bonus story was sent in by M. in West Virginia.
4: Hi, my name is M, and I just started listening to your show, and I'm still stuck in way early seasons, but I'm binge listening, but I didn't know if you were still doing the hometown lore and folk legends, so I wanted to uh, let you know about the ghost story from where I am from, which is actually the only ghost to have testified in a court of law and have it be ruled and convict someone of murder. So I am from a place in West Virginia, um known as Greenbrier County, and this is the story of the Greenbrier County ghost. She was a young woman who lived with her husband and they were both very wealthy people and they were from well-to-do families. He was not a nice man. He was said to be very controlling and unkind to her, but Uh, No one really said anything about it because of their power and status in the town. When they had gotten into a fight, he had supposedly pushed her down the stairs of their two-story home. When she did not die, he then strangled her. She was killed and then her body was buried and they did not hold a funeral, which if you know anything about West Virginia, It's um, a really religious area and a lot of people are Southern Baptist and so it's like really uncommon for Southern Baptists not to hold like a funeral procession. So she had no wake, there was nothing that let anybody see the body. Her mother was very upset by this and decided that something was amiss, that something was wrong. So she is said to have had this just uneasy feeling about the whole thing and decided to take her son-in-law to court for murder and claimed that he had murdered his wife. So when they go to court, she comes with the claim of a testimony that her daughter has appeared to her for several weeks at the foot of her bed claiming that she was murdered, that she was strangled by her husband. Nobody really took this seriously at first, but the mother insisted. So in order to quell these suspicions of this very wealthy man, they decided to exhume her body. And when they exhumed her body, she was still pretty fresh, and they took her out of her coffin and unwrapped her body, and she had bruising and ligature marks around her neck that indicated that she had been strangled. When the jury and the judge and everyone saw this, the husband was convicted of murder. This is the story of a real person, and she's actually buried in Greenbrier County, West Virginia. I won't disclose where, but I've been to her tombstone. Her name was Zora Heaster Shue, and she was a real person. And that's the story of the Greenbrier County ghost.
0: Thanks, Sam. Now, this story should sound somewhat familiar. I covered the Greenbrier ghost back on episode 15 of season 10. You can dig through the archives if you'd like to hear more on the case. But every time I hear about this case, I think to myself that a ghost testifying in court says more about the competence of the court than it does the acceptance of ghosts. I mean, think about it. You're dragged to court where an invisible, silent entity spills the beans and rats you out. It's a spooky thought if people believe it. Though in this case, I suppose I will eat crow. Because it at least appears that in this case, the court was right to listen. Go figure. Either way, another big thanks to M for sharing the entry. And an even bigger thanks to you for sticking around for the end of the program. Now I'll catch up with you guys next week with part two. Where we can then officially decide who brought the spookiest stories to the table. And real quick before I close this thing out, if you have the ability, I would really appreciate it if you would follow, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You have no idea how much that helps bring in fresh blood. Uh, I mean, new listeners. Oh, and lastly, if you are interested in backing the supplemental fundraiser for Shadows in the Desert, you can send your funds directly using Zelle. Well, if your bank offers that option. Just use email blurrymonsters at gmail.com. That's blurrymonsters at gmail.com. And be sure to include contact information, including physical address and email, so we can get you your reward package when it's ready. But don't take off just yet. I have one more entry to share here is an anonymously submitted story from Nicaragua about the Azososca Lagoon. Here to play us out.
17: This is the legend of the Azososca Lagoon. Legend has it that four rows of rocks emerge on the serene waters of the Azososca Lagoon on which the roof of a wonderful temple rested. The cacique or chief Nagrandano and Chief Nekecheti, preceded by the aging parents of the tribes, came to the temples in fragile canoes to deposit at the foot of the altar their offerings of gold, silver, and precious stones to the Supreme God. An old warrior, whom everyone respected as a divinity, guarded the temple. He had large muscles, his chest was covered in tattoos, and his wrinkled skin was scarred, winner of a hundred glorious battles for his land and for his God. One afternoon, Princess Isayana, daughter of the chief Nekecheri, perfumed with flowers from the countryside, arrived at the shore of the lagoon accompanied by the Spanish conquerors. She had the intent to enter the temple believing that they were the children of the sun. The fierce guardian did not understand that Isayana had been the victim of deception. He took this as treason. He contracted his features terribly, and intense anger flashed in his eyes. He raised his obsidian knife and ended her life. The conquistadors, who only wanted to seize the treasure, shot his muskets and wounded him. The legend tells that the wounded warrior crawled inside the temple like a snake and that by shaking an unknown base made the Temple of the Gods sink forever with its treasures in the deep waters of Azososka. Only the Feathered Serpent continued to protect the mysterious lagoon as an endearing spell.